Well, we now return to our study of the book of Luke. And we know that Luke, the historian, wrote his gospel in the midst of a pluralistic society. He wrote it to a Roman official named Theophilus, and this was a Gentile audience. And he showed to that Gentile audience that Jesus was the Savior that they needed. But we know that Jesus was a Jew, and his ministry was all in the context of first century Israel. Therefore, when we come to the gospel accounts, there's a certain strangeness that is there as we read about the customs and uh, the, the concerns of the people that Jesus is ministering to and that are around him. In other words, when we come to the gospels, it's easy to see how Jesus was the Messiah for Israel, but it can be harder to see why he is the Savior for all mankind. But this brings us back to Luke's purpose for writing. He wrote his gospel so that the Gentile world at that time, and by implication us today, can be able to know how Jesus is the Savior for all. He is showing the, the Gentile world that this man, born in Nazareth of Galilee, is Lord of heaven and earth. And this Jesus demands the worship of all peoples. He demands and is worthy of the allegiance of Jews, of Romans, and even of Americans. And so this means that Luke's presentation of Jesus is just as relevant today as it was when it was written. We need the Gospel of Luke just as much as his original audience did. As you know, here in the West, Christianity is increasingly marginalized. It is seen as not the way of truth, but it is seen as a bigoted and antiquated religious system. And the reason for this is that the claims of Christ, the holiness of God, and the resulting ethical obligations are an affront to our society's way of life. You see, what our culture calls good, the Bible calls evil. And what our culture calls evil, the Bible calls good. And the things in those two categories increase by the day. And these competing worldviews collide almost at every turn. We see it every day. But what Luke wanted to communicate and what we need to see for us in our own day is that our culture, our neighbors, our family, our world need the salvation that Jesus brings. No matter what their theological pre-commitments are, no matter what their current beliefs are, they need Jesus. Because you see, the modern secular ideal is just ancient paganism in a new dress. People want spirituality without religion. They want mystical connections with nature without commandments from a creator. In this new, secular, postmodern, choose-your-own-ending approach to spirituality is just as damning as the polytheism that, the, that Luke encountered as he wrote in the first century. The polytheism of the Romans. And really just as damning as the self-righteousness of the Jews that Jesus confronted. All these other ways 
of seeking to have spirituality, to have religion apart from the one true and living God all winds up in the same place. Jesus called it the wide road to destruction. And so in other words, our enlightened 21st century desperately needs the Son of God who Luke records arrived in first century Israel. And in our text today, we're going to see how Luke continues his presentation of Jesus as the unparalleled Savior for humanity. He truly is Jesus for all. And we'll see that even more in our text today. And I invite you to turn in your personal copy of God's Word uh, to Luke chapter 3. Gospel of Luke chapter 3. The last couple weeks, we've been looking exclusively at the ministry of John the Baptist, as Luke has recorded for us here in Luke 3. John came on the scene and began to preach a message of repentance. He called people to a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And this repentance, this baptism, was all in preparation for the coming Messiah. Jesus was about to step on the scene, was about to bring his ministry of salvation, and the people needed to be ready. They needed to have softened hearts. They needed to have realigned lives. And John is seeking to get the nation ready. But over this week and next, we are going to study verses 15 through 39. We have looked the last few weeks at verses 1 through 14. We're now going to look at the rest of chapter 3, verses 15 through 39. And in this passage, we're going to see that Jesus is shown to to be unmatched, unparalleled. There's none that compare to him. And he's... He's unmatched in three significant ways. And we'll look at what these three ways are. And as we look at these, I pray that we are drawn to worship Jesus as our unmatched Savior. Only He is qualified and is able to be the Savior for you and for me. John makes that clear. Luke makes that clear in what he records. We can't miss it. So let's begin. We're going to read for this morning. We're simply going to read verses 15 through 20. Luke chapter 3, verses 15 through 20. It says, As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. The chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now, today we are simply going to look at the first, these verses I read encapsulate the first uh, way that we see Jesus as unmatched in this the remainder of this chapter. And that particularly is, is this, in verses 15 through 20, we see his unmatched ministry. Unmatched ministry. 
And flowing into verse 15, we've been reading and seeing about the ministry of John, John the Baptist. And we know that John was a powerful preacher. People came from far and wide to hear his message. Uh, The other gospel writers speak about how all Judea and Jerusalem came out to him. They traveled uh, 15 to 20 miles to hear John preach. And the crowds could detect the truth that was in this message. This was a prophet of God. There was something unique about him. He was not just another rabbi. No one was preaching like this. In fact, there were several indications with John and his ministry that God was about something new. That what John was doing was not just a continuation of what had been going on, but that God was beginning a new work. Particularly, we, we, see, we see this in, in first in just who John was. John was, remember, a Levite by birth. His father was a Levite who worked in the temple. And so by nature of his birth, he too would be a priest who would then be working in the temple as well. But instead, do we find him in the temple preaching? No, we find him far away from the temple, far away from Jerusalem, out in the wilderness. In essence, saying, listen, back there in the temple, you're not going to find the truth. That's not where the, the, the future is. That's not where the way of God is. The way of God is found out here in the wilderness. And John was out there preaching. He also see that the indications that there was something new going on in that he, he came on the scene uh, showing himself to be a prophet of God. In fact, even his clothing was an indication that he stood in the line of prophets. He had, as other gospel writers tell us, a, a garment of camel's hair and, with a leather belt. And this was exactly what 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8 tells us about what Elijah wore. Elijah wore a, a, a hairy garment with a leather belt. And therefore, John the Baptist is saying that he is standing in that tradition of prophecy. And remember, there hadn't been a prophet on the scene for over 400 years. And so people knew something new was happening. But most significantly, he preached about a kingdom that was near and the need of repentance to enter it. There had, the rabbis are talking about obedience to the law and obedience to this and that, but none of them are, are proclaiming that the kingdom of God is here now, that it, that it was at hand, and yet John is here confidently proclaiming that the kingdom is here they, and that people need to repent to enter into it. And I believe that his baptism out in the wilderness was also significant. Because remember, where did God lead his people Israel through when he was forming them as a nation? He took them out of Egypt. He brought them through the wilderness. And they came to the plains of Moab and crossed the Jordan River, over conquered Jericho, and then went up into the land. John is baptizing about that same place of those plains of Moab where, uh, where Israel would have crossed over the Jordan. In other words, even by John's location, he's indicating that God is forming a new people. God is getting a new Israel following a, 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 a new, a new fall, uh, uh, um, through God's Messiah coming, that he's going to be forming a new people. Now, people coming out, seeing the symbolism, seeing John as a prophet, all of this was creating quite a buzz. 
And look at verse 15. It says, As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ. They saw what was going on. A new thing was happening. And you can just see them kind of all thinking in their heads, this might be the Messiah right in front of me. And they're kind of looking around. They're asking one another, do you think this is the Messiah? I'm, I'm wondering if it is. It says they were in eager expectation. This word meaning an anticipation of something directly around the corner. And of course, John was preaching about a kingdom right around the corner. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. So they rightly were asking whether John was the one to bring about that kingdom, whether he was the king. But in their expectation... They're wondering whether this austere prophet could really be the long-awaited Savior, the long-awaited Messiah who would lead them to victory and would set up this kingdom. The text says, verse 15, that they were questioning in their hearts concerning John. I don't think this means that they simply thought it internally and never said anything out loud. I think it speaks to the depth of their questioning. They're questioning deep down in their hearts, is this really the one? Could this be? There was a, a deep sense that they needed to know this answer. They wanted to know if this was the Messiah. It wasn't a passing thought. In fact, it probably, it's very, that very thought that probably brought them out to the desert in the first place. You know, they, someone goes out to hear John, comes back, and around his local neighborhood begins talking about this prophet who he went out to see in a baptism that he participated in. And so then uh, people are talking and going, man, should we go out there? Maybe this is the Messiah. We're not sure. We, we hope so. We're thinking it might be this question was, was deep on their minds. Whether he be the Christ, the Christos, the anointed one, the Messiah. And John answers them all, he says. He says, he, he, he says listen, I know all of you have this question, so I'm going to answer all of you with this. And the way that he answers their question, here, at least here in Luke, he doesn't just say no. He doesn't answer directly in the, in the negative as he does, for example, in the Gospel of John. But here he, he answers, rather, by lifting up Jesus. He points to Jesus as the superior person. And in this, he faithfully executes his role as the forerunner. He went before the Messiah, was there to uplift the Messiah, to, to showcase the Messiah, and to point people to the Messiah. And that's what he does here. He recognizes the crowd, that Israel has this deep longing to know the Messiah. And he doesn't take any of that glory for himself, but pushes it all off to one who would come after him. And it's here in these verses, in verse 16 through and 17, that we see some qualities of a true preacher of God's Word. You know, you could... And we're not going to spend any time on this, but, but he really characterizes what true gospel preaching should look like. I mean, think about it. A true preacher must exalt Christ. John does that. A true preacher must humble himself. John explicitly does that. A true preacher must uh, warn of judgment. And John does that. But a true preacher must also comfort with the gospel. And John does that as well. And so John really begins this ministry of gospel preaching 
that the apostles picked up and carried on as our examples as well. But however, the, the, the specific que- referring to the specific question posed to John, whether he was the Messiah, John denies that title and role of Messiah, and he highlights Jesus' superiority. Jesus is greater. He, he says, no, I'm not the Messiah. You need to look to the one who's coming. And he does that. He highlights Jesus' superiority in three areas. The first is Jesus' superior might. Jesus' superior might. Look at verse 16. It says, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. What I want to focus on first is that, that phrase, he who is mightier than I. It's here in verse 16 that we see John speaking about the Messiah. This is the first time that John here in Luke's gospel begins to uh, speak of the one who is coming after him. And he calls him the one who is mightier or stronger than I. He doesn't indicate how Jesus is stronger than he is, but John's point is this. He says, you think I am doing something significant here? Then wait till you see the one who surpasses me in power. And from this, I believe the people would expect to to see a display of power when the Messiah came. In other words, John was simply a preacher. But John's saying there's one who's coming who's going to be displaying strength and power in a way that you don't see in me. And so, rightly so, and as the Old Testament predicted, the Messiah would begin doing miracles. There would be something that would vindicate John's claim about the Messiah being mightier. But not only would Jesus' might and his strength be demonstrated in his his, uh, the miracles that he would perform along with his preaching, but we know that his might and his power would be completely and fully demonstrated in his defeat of sin and the devil at the cross. He is the ultimate strong man. No one can overpower him. Death cannot overpower him. The devil cannot overpower him. Jesus is the mightiest one. And it's interesting that as even the beginning of this chapter gave us a list of all the mighty men that were in power, all those who held positions of authority, and yet John is saying there's one who is the mightiest of all, who's mightier than me. And although when Jesus came his first time, he didn't display uh, his power and authority in the fullest manner, but he chose to display it differently. He he didn't walk in with the military. He didn't walk in looking to overthrow Rome and overthrow uh, the Jewish leaders with military might in his first coming. Instead, at his first coming, he submitted himself to death on a cross so that he could defeat the grave. But we know that's not the end of the story. He rose again and He is coming again. He is coming back to vanquish his foes with a military, and he will not not, uh, hold back any of his power. 
it won't even be a contest. It'll be a battle that will be completely one-sided. Jesus will display his power and his might in full glory when he returns again. Revelation chapter 19 describes that mighty moment as he returns to earth to display his might. And so in this, we can see, friends, that we worship a mighty Savior. We do not worship a weak uh, religious leader. We worship the mightiest one of all. And this is important. Of course, the cross was a stumbling block to the Greeks. They, uh, they couldn't understand. It was foolishness. They couldn't understand how uh, your God could be crucified. It seems so weak. It seems so pitiful. And yet we know that it was through that that Jesus displayed his mighty power. And we know that that's not the end of the story. He will return again to display that for all to see. So we, John not only highlights Jesus' superior might, but he also next highlights Jesus' superior majesty. Jesus' superior majesty. Again, we see this in verse 16. He says, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. The strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. After exalting Jesus' strength, he then magnifies Jesus' worth. He says that in looking at the majesty and the worth of the two of them, of John and Jesus, he says, I do not even compare. I don't even deserve to be on the same scale. I don't, I don't deserve to even be compared to this one who is coming. And he expresses this by using the illustration of a sandal strap. And for us modern readers, this might be a little strange. We're often not tying each other's shoes or, or un, undoing people's sandals. But I think we can still pick up what's going on here. Because for the hearers of, of, of that day, it would have made perfect sense. They walked everywhere. And the roads were dirty and dusty. There was uh, not any way to really clean your feet before you entered a house. Even the, the floors in people's houses, for as much as they kept them clean, were still dusty. And so their feet, after, uh, throughout the day, were very grimy and dirty. They were gross. And, and so to touch the feet, to untie a sandal, was a very lowly task to do. In fact, it's recorded the rabbis have said that uh, even though slaves were allowed and, and, and actually called on to do many things, the rabbi said that the slaves were not allowed to untie sandals. They weren't even allowed to do what John is saying here, this, this untying the strap of a sandal. Because feet were so filthy that it was not right for slaves to be forced to do even that task. So do you see what John is saying here? John is placing himself two steps below a slave. You have a slave, you have the one who unties a sandal, and John says, I'm not even worthy to do that. He moves himself far into the background. And yet, it is in Matthew 11, 11, that it's recorded, Jesus says that among those born among women, there was no one greater than John the Baptist. So, if John the Baptist is 
the greatest human at that point to ever have been born, and yet he says he's two steps below Jesus. You can see where the rest of us stand. I mean, the humility of John is truly amazing. It, it's incredible. He's been preparing his whole life for this role. He's been out in the desert knowing that he's the forerunner to the Messiah, knowing that he needs to be pointing people to Jesus and that he holds a special place, that there were prophecies made about him that he would be going before the Lord, preparing the way for him. And yet, John takes no pride in this. John takes no credit in this. He takes the lowest seat possible. He does not see himself sitting at the right hand of the throne. He does not envision a special position in the kingdom because he is the Messiah's forerunner. He says, I am not worthy to even touch his dirty sandal. His sandal is too glorious and too majestic for me to even touch that. John understood the majesty of Jesus before anybody else did. Before Jesus had performed any miracles, John knew the greatness of this man and how far short he fell in comparison. And there's a lesson in this for all of us. John models for us what a proper response to the majesty of Jesus should be. That we should all take the lower seat. That we should all recognize that Jesus is far and above more majestic than us. We must sense deep down in our bones that we are unworthy to do even the most menial tasks for Him. Unfortunately, I think it's possible for us to take our salvation for granted. For Jesus to simply become our friend or to be to some like a spiritual Santa Claus where we're thankful for what he does for us. But there's no majesty. There's no bowing before him. We've tamed and domesticated Jesus so that he is not the one that we bow down before. In fact, I'm convinced that many who claim the name of Jesus in this country do not know the Jesus that John knew. They do not see Jesus as John saw him. To them, he's just a nice friend, but he's not the awesome, majestic Lord. We need to follow in John's footsteps and see this Jesus who is unmatched, this Jesus who holds all majesty, and that we do not deserve to be called his friend. We do not deserve to be associated with him at all, to even Touch his filthy sandal. And so we need to ask ourselves, do we sense deep down our unworthiness to know and be known by Christ? Yes, salvation in Jesus is such a gift, and hallelujah, we're so thankful for it. And we rejoice in it, and we can go with boldness and confidence before the throne, as the Bible calls us to. But in that boldness, there's a, there's a humility that we recognize we are unworthy to be there. May we be able to say with John, as recorded in John 3.30, He must increase and I must decrease. He must increase and I must decrease. That was John's heartbeat. 
And we see that even here. So when John is asked whether he's the Messiah, he says, he says no, Jesus has un... Uh, Jesus has... Uh, he's unmatched might, superior might. He has unmatched... Uh, Forgive me, I'm forgetting my points here. He uh, has superior might, he has superior majesty. And thirdly, we see in these verses his superior ministry. His superior ministry. And this is really where John spends the bulk of his time, where we're going to spend the bulk of our time as well. As John here and, and Luke, as he's recording it, that Jesus is the unmatched Messiah. And we see that primarily in his ministry. That he, he has a different ministry, a superior ministry. We see this in the end of verse 16 and 17. John says, beginning of verse 16, I baptize you with water. But then at the end of verse 16, he says, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This, again, is where John is going to focus most of his comments. He compares his baptismal ministry with Jesus' baptismal ministry. His is with water, and Jesus's is with spirit and fire. And it begins with the familiar. He begins with what everybody has seen and known, and that is his baptism with water. This is what all these crowds have seen, and, and most of them had probably experienced. They'd gone down into that water. They go, yeah, that is your baptism. It's with water. But he says, essentially, I baptize with water only. I immerse you only in water. It's an external baptism. And although it represents an internal repentance, the baptism itself only occurs externally. But in contrast, Jesus' baptism is with the Holy Spirit and fire. The Holy Spirit and fire. It pierces into the, the internal parts of a man. It changes them. The Spirit is given to mankind. Now, these two elements, Holy Spirit and fire, are kind of a funny pairing. But in the Greek, they're modified by one preposition, and therefore they belong together. They're grouped together. And again, this can seem like a, a strange thing to group together. I mean, the Holy Spirit... Seems like an attractive, obvious offer. Of course, the Messiah baptized with the Holy Spirit. He gives the Holy Spirit, of course. But fire? How is the, Holy, how is the Messiah baptizing with fire? Why does the Messiah's baptism include fire? And how is that superior to the water baptism of John? Well, I think John is pulling together Two strands of prophecy. Two strands of prophecy. The prophets, you see, wrote of a time when the Spirit would be given to God's people. In connection with this, when the Spirit would be poured out, God promised to cleanse His people. And this cleansing has been related or spoken of in relation to fire as well. I want to draw your attention to two passages. First is Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36, and you can turn there, Ezekiel 36, 
is in the passage speaking about the new covenant that God would bring upon his people and make with his people and the results that it would have upon them. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25 through 27, the Lord God says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to obey to walk in my statutes, and to be careful to obey my rules. So you see this connection of the giving of the Spirit and this cleansing that's taking place. God's going to put His Spirit in His people. They're going to be cleansed from all all their uncleannesses and their idols. So there's this, this purging, this cleansing that's taking place with the Spirit. But continue to go back to Isaiah. We're going to look at Isaiah chapter 4, another passage that speaks about his, the cleansing of his people. Isaiah chapter 4, looking verses 2 through 4. Isaiah 4, verses 2 through 4. It says, In that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. Stop right there. That whenever the branch of the Lord is spoken about, this was an Old Testament analogy for this, this new shoot from the stump of Jesse, this, this new branch that's growing, that's, that's really the Messiah. This is the, this is the era of the Messiah. And it says, verse 3, And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. Verse 4, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a day and by a spirit of burning. Do you see that? That in the Messiah's day, the Lord is going to be cleansing his people and there's going to be this uh, washing them clean, washing away the filth, and particularly by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of burning or a spirit of purging. And so I think these are the things that Jesus, that John, as he's speaking in Luke chapter 3, is bringing together and speaking about the ministry of the Messiah. That Jesus is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. And biblical scholars agree that the baptism of the Spirit seems to be, as we know later on through the New Testament, is this this, what happens at the moment of conversion, that when a, someone repents and believes that the, the Spirit of God is given to them, and they are baptized in the Spirit into one body, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12. And this happened at the, at the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was given. After Jesus had ascended to heaven, He sent the Spirit. He sent the gift of His Spirit. And this baptism, this baptism of the Spirit happened. But... We, we know about that, and we, we talk about what the Spirit does in the life of the believer, that He indwells in the believer, and He seals the believer for that final day. And, and all that the Spirit means, that, that baptism of the Spirit is not, 
is something that happens at the moment of conversion. It's not a, a secondary event that we are supposed to seek, that we are supposed to be baptized in the Spirit sometime later in our, in our Christian life. We know that as soon as we trust in Jesus, we are baptized in the Spirit into the body of Christ. It's a simultaneous with our conversion and with the giving of the Holy Spirit. And so, as we think about the Holy Spirit, we think about fire, it can mean a couple things. First is that for believers, when we receive the Holy Spirit, it, it, this could also speak about the fact that we are purified, that we are purged by fire. Similar to what we see in Isaiah chapter 4, that as God purged Israel, the remnant that was there, that was saved, so God cleanses and purges us. Zechariah chapter 13 verse 9, also speaks of God refining His people like silver, which refinement involves fire. Peter picks up on this in 1 Peter chapter 1, that trials are used to refine our faith. Again, this, you can't have this refining of metal without heat, without fire. So, the baptism of the Holy Spirit in fire, I think for believers, can refer to this purging, this cleansing that takes place in our hearts and lives, beginning now through our salvation, and ultimately that'll be complete. But I think as we look at verse 17 included, in fact, you can flip back to Luke chapter 3, fire is the last word of verse 16, but then it goes into verse 17, and I believe what he's describing here, we cannot avoid the implication that this fire has to do with the, the burning of unbelievers, that there is a, a judgment that comes upon those who do not believe. In verse 17, John uses an agricultural analogy to describe the separating and the dividing work of the Messiah. The Messiah will be actively involved in separating the faithful from the faithless. The analogy he uses is a farmer who would bring in his grain, such as wheat, and he would need to separate the seed kernels from the chaff, from the stalk that it was on. And this was done uh, after it was trampled upon and, and uh, those seeds were separated. He would then take his winnowing fork and toss up a clump into the air, high into the air, and as, as that Middle Eastern wind would sweep through, it would, it would blow away that chaff and that straw, and the, the seed kernels would fall back to the ground. And so as he continued to do that, throwing it up time and time again, that chaff would continue to get blown away. And what would be left would be the precious grain and, and kernels that he needed to make flour. And so John uses this very active and vivid illustration to describe what the Messiah will do with humanity. Those who repent and believe will be gathered into his barn, it says. He's going to... He's going to clear his threshing floor, separating them out. He's going to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And those who refuse to repent will be a part of that burning. Therefore, I believe that the sense of these two verses in which John describes Jesus' superior uh, ministry of baptism is this. How one responds to John's and Jesus' messages will determine whether they are saved into Messiah's barn or whether they will be destroyed in the unquenchable fire. In other words, their, people's eternal destiny depends on their response to the gospel preached. In this, 
is what we see throughout the Bible as well. People's response to the gospel depends where they will spend eternity. Now already, already here, John is highlighting what Simeon had already spoken about Jesus. If you remember Luke chapter 2, verses 34 and 35, Simeon had told Jesus' mother Mary when Jesus was just a little over a month old, told, she, he told his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and a, for a sign that is opposed so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. In other words, he said Jesus is going to separate this nation. There's those that are going to fall. There's those that are going to rise. There's those that are going to oppose him. But either way, the thoughts of all are going to be revealed. Either they're going to believe and accept him or they're going to oppose him and reject him. And John is essentially saying the same thing. That is what Jesus is coming to do. Because Jesus is the great divider of humanity. Either people will accept his message or they will reject it. While this is, again, true of any claim made by anybody that you can either accept what they say or, or reject what they say, what you, do with what, what you do with Jesus has eternal consequences. No one else can say that if you accept my message that you will be saved and if you reject it, you'll, be burning, you'll burn with unquenchable fire. That is uniquely reserved for the Messiah, for Jesus Christ. Only Jesus can promise full safety for believers and full destruction to unbelievers. His ministry alone deals with, with eternity. And this is why Jesus' ministry was superior to John's. John's ministry could only point forward to Jesus. But Jesus' ministry was ultimate. It was the work of God, the living God, in the world, in time and space. And this is true of all ministry before or since. We can only preach to people's ears, but we cannot change their hearts. We baptize someone and we give them communion, but we cannot secure their, their eternal destiny. It is Jesus alone who gives the Holy Spirit. It is He who alone converts. And therefore, it is incumbent upon us today, just as it was for John's audience, to ensure that we are among Christ's wheat and not his chaff. That we are among those seed kernels that fall to the ground and are gathered back into the barn for ultimate eternal salvation. And that we are not among that chaff that is blown away by the wind and is burned with unquenchable fire. And I say this because it is easy for someone to sit among the people of God, for someone to listen to sermons year after year, for someone to be around the Christian church and yet not truly believe in Jesus and still be chaff. It's, church history has been full of those people, and it's true even today that those who, not all those who are on the church's roster will be found in the Lamb's Book of Life. Not all those who are affiliated with Christianity will be found to be with the king on that final day. Unfortunately, there are many who are self-deluded. Many who think they are safe when they are not. The Bible calls us to examine ourselves, to see whether we are in the faith. 
2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. In another place, it says that we are told to be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. The reason these warnings and these exhortations are in the Scriptures, folks, is because Paul and Peter both knew that there would be those reading their letters and consequently those listening to the preaching of God's Word in the generations afterward who would think that they are saved, to think that they are on the side of the Messiah and yet have never truly repented, have never really surrendered their life to Jesus and do not have their names written in the Lamb's book of life. The the delusion is very real. You'll remember that Jesus told of people coming before the throne of God on that last day. And they cry out to Jesus and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do great ministry in your name? Didn't we work for you? Weren't we proclaiming your gospel? They expected they would receive salvation. But astonishingly, Jesus will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Scary words that those who can do ministry, serve in the church, do things and speak Jesus' name, and yet be so self-deluded that they do not know Christ, and Christ doesn't know them. And in fact, they're workers of lawlessness, Jesus says. It is easy for a faker. It's easy for hypocrites to spend their entire life in the church. They've learned how to talk the Christian talk. They know the right events, the right things to show up for. They know how to respond to questions in small groups that will not raise any eyebrows. They know how to give a prayer request that reveals nothing but satisfies the group. But see, the hypocrite is often not just fooling everyone around them. They're also often fooling themselves. They think that they are on the gospel road to life, but they are on the religious road to death. They are trusting in their own good deeds to save them. They compare themselves with others and think that they're not that bad. And this is what sets the true gospel apart from all other religious and, frankly, non-religious systems. Religious and secular systems. The gospel is a message of self-denial and self-bankruptcy. We come before Christ and we recognize that we have nothing. That we, are, we count ourselves as dead. We have died with Christ. We have been crucified with Him. Our essential self, our righteousness is dead. We, that's all we bring. That's all we confess. We aren't trying to prove ourselves We aren't trying to save ourselves. We aren't trying to make ourselves more righteous. You see, that's what all of their worldviews and other systems of salvation try to teach. That is self-righteousness and self-redemption. They tell you to either just be yourself and follow your heart, that you don't need to change anything, or there's a series of hoops to to jump through to obtain salvation. You see, the human heart is bent towards self-justification and (laughs) self-righteousness. 
If we're honest with ourselves, we recognize that. We want to do it ourselves. We want to do it spiritually ourselves. And that concept of being completely dependent, ultimately for salvation, even every day, to accomplish any good we are dependent upon God, is, is an affront to our pride. And our, our flesh hates it. But that is where salvation is found. Jesus says, if any of you would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. We must deny ourselves. My two-year-old frequently says, I do it. I do it. She, even at a young age, wants to do things by herself. This is natural for humanity to, to do it on their own. And frankly, for all those who fail to accept the gospel, who fail to repent, are essentially spiritually saying, I do it. No, God, I do it. I do it. But to repent, to turn to the Messiah, is to say, I can't do it. It's confessing, I cannot save myself. I, I have no salvation in and of my own works. It's admitting to our inability to measure up to God's standard. And this is what we all must do if we want to escape the fire of judgment. You know, this is the second week that we've, we've talked about, spent time thinking and talking about judgment. And you might say, man, this is depressing. Why, why are we talking about hell? Why are we talking about fire? Why are we talking about judgment? The short answer is because the text brings it up and so we can't avoid it. But I think it's important because when, when a lot of people talk about Jesus, they want to think of a soft, fuzzy Jesus. They, you, you'll typically hear that people will say, oh, I don't like the God of the Old Testament, but I like the Jesus of the New Testament. We just need to follow Jesus, just need to follow his teachings because he's all about love and acceptance. Unfortunately, friends, that's not the portrait that the Bible paints. That statement doesn't understand the God of the Old Testament nor the Jesus of the New Testament. And there's great questions to ask them whether they've actually read the Bible in those places because we see great grace and great love in the Old Testament as well as wrath. And we see great love and grace in the New Testament as well as wrath. God is faithfully consistent. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. His attributes might be expressed differently in different eras, but He is the same God in all times and all places. And that means in both Testaments. And that means that while Jesus is a is love, he also brings judgment. Because judgment is really just the other side of love. The point is this. We must submit to Jesus as Lord for us to receive the baptism of the Spirit, for us to be purged of our sin, and for us to be gathered into the barn of the Messiah. To be in that heavenly dwelling, that place where we are safe, and the fire, unquenchable fire cannot touch us. But if we refuse to submit to Jesus, we will one day be chaff that will be burned by unquenchable fire. It's a matter of eternal consequence. It's a matter of life and death, what we do with Jesus. And so I ask you to examine your heart this morning. Where do you stand with the Lord? If it is just you and Him, would He say, depart from me, I never knew you? Or would he say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Welcome in the joy of your master. 
you can have the confidence of knowing that you belong to Jesus today. You must repent of your sins, believe in Jesus, knowing that he is the Son of God given for you. And you can put your head on the pillow tonight knowing that you are found in Christ. And once you are united to Jesus, once you are found in him, once you are a kernel belonging to Christ, you cannot switch back. Salvation is irreversible. We are forever his when we are united to Jesus, when we are given the Spirit of God. He never removes the Spirit from us. He gives it to us eternally. And so I call on all of us to examine our hearts. And if you do not know Jesus, if you have not repented and put your trust in him, repent today. Trust in him because there is an unquenchable fire that is awaiting you if you do not. I don't say that simply to scare you. I say that to give you truth because that is what the Bible tells tells us. So we've been looking here at how Jesus' ministry is unmatched. It's a superior ministry. But after Luke records how John exalts Jesus' ministry, talking about how his baptism is better than, than his own, than John's, he then closes out the narrative about John by talking about how uh, the remainder of John's ministry. And he does this in verses 18 through 20. And we'll just quickly look at these verses as we finish this morning. First, we have verse 18 that is really just this kind of summary verse that summarizes John's ministry. At verse 18, look at it with me. It says, So with many other exhortations, he preached the good news to the people. Exhortations means he urged, he pleaded, he admonished the people. We've already seen John preaching this way, but it tells us that he continued to do that. He never slowed down. He never gave up. And these exhortations were part of his broader task of preaching the good news. It says that with many, with other exhortations, he preached good news. That, that those three words, preach good news, really are found in one verb in the Greek, which if we were to transliterate it into English, it would literally be he was gospelizing the people or he was good newsing the people, which aren't really words in English, but it helps to capture the essence of this word. John was gospelizing. He was preaching this good news with exhortations. Again, reminding us that the good news that needs to go to humanity includes the bad news as well. We must tell people of the coming judgment as much as we must tell them of salvation in Christ because salvation in Christ will not make sense if we do not speak about the wrath to come. And even though John gave hard words to the crowds, to the people, he remained incredibly popular. In fact, people continued to go out to them. He was stirring up excitement over the coming Messiah, and the people hoped this would mean the end of Roman oppression and the beginning of a dominant Jewish nation in which the Messianic kingdom would be set up, the Messiah would vanquish their enemies, and they would be the crown of the earth. But we know he, even though he was popular with the people, he wasn't popular with the authorities. He wasn't popular with the authorities. But we see that his popularity continued on even after John left the scene. As we're going to see, John dies. John is, does not get to see, does not still alive to see the cross and the resurrection. But in Jesus' final week of his life, 
as he's debating with the religious leaders, he asks them a question of whether John's baptism was from heaven or was from man. And the religious leaders were in a bind because they knew that the people who were listening, uh, that they revered John. That even though John had since died, that they still upheld him as a prophet. He was still very popular. And if they said that his baptism was from man, the people would get angry because they believed he was a prophet sent from God. And so even long after John had passed away, his popularity still remained. But it was, in one sense, his popularity that got him in trouble with the authorities, particularly with Herod the Tetrarch. And we see that in verses 19 and 20. Look at it. It says, But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now, Herod the Tetrarch was the ruler of Galilee and Perea. Galilee, a region in the north part of Israel around the Sea of Galilee, on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. And Perea was an area in modern-day Jordan on the east side of the Jordan River in the east of the Dead Sea. John was preaching over in this region. He was, uh, says that it was, he preached in the Bethany beyond the Jordan, which tells us he was over across the Jordan into this Perea area. And he was doing this just north of the Dead Sea where there was a road that went from the capital of Perea uh, over across, forded the, the Jordan River and then went up into the hill country to Jerusalem, the capital of Judea in, in Israel. And so John was on this major thoroughfare preaching and teaching and it was very popular among the people. And it was because of this popularity that Herod was worried that there could that John could potentially raise up a a, a political uh, group against him. But more importantly, as the other gospels tell us that uh, that John began to preach against Herod and what he did with his brother's wife. Luke tells us that John reproved Herod for Herodias, his brother's wife. Herodias was married to Philip the Tetrarch. And ironically, Herodias was the niece of both Herod and Philip. So this was one tight, uh, uh, immoral little circle of marriages. So Herodias was married to Philip. And Herod Antipas uh, arranged this with Herodias that, they, that Herodias would leave Philip and come and be married to Herod Antipas. And that's what they did. And John boldly confronted Herod. Matthew 14 says, records his words in which he says, it is not lawful for you to have her. Herod clearly breaking his vow to his wife and stealing another man's wife, the immorality abounded. And for this uncomfortable message, Herod did not like John. And, he want, and it says, the text says in Matthew that he wanted to kill John for this, but it was John's popularity that actually kept him from killing John. And so he did the next best, best thing. He put John in prison. He couldn't kill him, so he puts him in prison. Now, it's important to note that here in Luke, uh, Luke records John going to prison here really before Jesus is even baptized, which we know is not the case because in the next verses, John is the one who baptizes Jesus. So Luke is including it here thematically, not chronologically. 
we know chronologically uh, John had a whole other year of ministry after Jesus started his ministry before he was put in prison. But Luke includes it here because as he's telling the story, he is closing out the chapter of John and the curtain is going to open again with Jesus and he, Jesus is going to be the dominant story of the narrative from here on out. And so in order to close down the John narrative, he includes the information here about him being put in prison. We know from the other gospel writers that a year or two after his imprisonment, John was beheaded by Herod. And we won't go into the details of his death because it doesn't pertain to our narrative here. But you can read about it in Matthew chapter 14. But what can we gain from these final verses about John and his ministry? I think there's two things that we can pick up here that we'll look at right before we close. First is that faithfulness is our calling. That just as John was faithful to what God had called him to, we need to be faithful to what God has called us to. John didn't minister very long. He ministered maybe a year and a half. And then he was put in prison. And then he had another year and a half, maybe two, before he was beheaded. He had a very short ministry. And yet he did exactly what God had called him to. He could, uh, he could uh, go to the grave in peace knowing that he had fulfilled what God had, had told him to do. And same with us. We need to be faithful to what God has called us to. Be faithful to the gospel. Be faithful to proclaim that gospel and know that, that God is pleased with that. But the second thing that we learn from John's ministry is that our reward as Christians is often not found in this world. In fact, we know that the, the, the ultimate reward is awaiting us on the other side of the grave. Jesus says, this world has hated me, it will hate you as well. There's great opposition that we find in this world. Therefore, it should not surprise us when there are fiery trials that come upon us, when there's opposition, when there's persecution. John experienced it. Jesus experienced it. The apostles experienced it. Church history shows that the church has experienced it all through the ages. It should not surprise us. And yet, we can be faithful to the end as John was. And so, I pray that God may find us faithful doing what John did. And that was magnifying the unmatched Messiah. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father, we indeed want to be faithful. No matter what you call us to, no matter what opposition comes our way, we want to be faithful to magnify Jesus. And so, Father, I pray that you would strengthen us. You would give us the bold word in due season to speak up where we need to speak up, to not be ashamed of the gospel that is salvation for all people. Father, may we as Foothill Bible Church continue to proclaim your word to our dying day. And we know that we will be able to give you all of the glory for that because we can't do it. We can, we've never been able to do anything spiritually good. It's all, if there's anything good, it's all you. And so we give you glory for what you have done in our lives so far, and we trust you and give you glory for what you will and can accomplish in us in the days ahead. It's in Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Go in the name of our Lord this week. Miss you. We look forward to seeing you soon.